Flip differentials, high GGTs, low iron, and hemoglobin. These are all things often noted by equine sports medicine veterinarians when interpreting laboratory tests on equine athletes. But what do they mean, and what is the level of evidence behind these interpretations? Well, we're trying to we're going to try and answer some of these questions and more on today's episode of the Ontario Animal Health Network podcast for the equine veterinarian. I'm your host, Dr. Allison Moore, co-lead of the Equine Network, and today's focus is on interpreting hemograms and biochemical profiles for the equine sports medicine veterinarian. I'm joined by Dr. Janet Beeler-Marfizi, who is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Pathologists and an assistant professor of clinical pathology at the Ontario Veterinary College. Welcome, Dr. Beeler-Marfizi. Thank you for having me. Really glad to be here. So, along with being an accomplished clinical pathologist, you're no stranger to the world of equine sport. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background working with equine athletes? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. I, my dad bought his first standard bred racehorse when I was about nine, Gigi Flamingo. She wasn't much stock, uh, but I've been around standard bred racehorses since that time, and I'm also married to a standard bred racehorse trainer. That's great. Well, horse racing, of course, is a great segue into discussing hemograms and uh, chemical chemistry profiles on our equine athletes, as these tests are frequently performed in that industry. So for the following discussion, we solicited questions from equine veterinarians in the province. So let's start with the hemogram. Sure. Um, effective oxygen delivery, as you know, is extremely important to all athletes, regardless of species. So naturally, the red cell number, hemoglobin concentration, and packed cell volume, or hematocrit, are frequently scrutinized in equine athletes. So firstly, as a refresher, what do these values represent? Well, those values represent our way of measuring crudely what the oxygen carrying capacity of blood is. They are essentially all measuring the same thing, but I think in, in veterinary practice, and I've thought about this a long time, and I don't know the answer for sure, but I think we tend to do packed cell volume because everybody has to have a centrifuge here and has to be able to do a spun PCV themselves in a microhematocrit tube. And I think that's why veterinary medicine has looked towards PCV more than hemoglobin as, as a physician would. They, I don't think they look very much at PCV. They just look at straight hemoglobin numbers. So they're all measurements or surrogate measurements of oxygen carrying capacity. So little difference among them, all doing the same thing from our standpoint anyway. So what do these high and low values mean? <laughs> a, a low value would suggest that the animal is anemic. And then we would want to try and characterize the anemia further. And to do that, we look at mean corpuscular volume or MCV and we also look at mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration, MCHC, or we look at MCH, mean corpuscular hemoglobin. They are just different ways of analyzing how much hemoglobin is found in the average red cell. So if an animal is mildly anemic, but there is no, it is normocytic and normochromic, so normal MCV, normal MCH or MCHC, then that is consistent with a mild anemia that would be referable to chronic inflammation and less so in the equine athlete, renal disease or some sort of chronic illness such as cancer. So in, in equine athletes, I would say that that type of anemia typically evolves, well, I don't notice it very commonly, but if I did see, I would think it would be chronic inflammation from some undetermined source. 
and I would have to talk to the, the referring DVM to, to see what they think might be the cause of that. If the animal had small MCV, so decreased MCV, microcytosis and hypochromasia or decrease in MCH or MCHC, that's consistent with iron deficiency anemia. And we'll touch again on that in a bit when we talk about interpreting iron values. So if I see that these values are increased, if I see an increase in PCV, an increase in hemoglobin, I would look then immediately to see if albumin is increased to see if the animal is dehydrated. And I would also look on the history to see if the veterinarian has noted any signs of dehydration clinically. But oftentimes we see normal PCV with high hemoglobin and increases in mean corpuscular hemoglobin. And so that occurs when there's been some hemolysis of the sample. Typically that occurs in vitro and it may have happened because the, the sample shipped overnight on a hot night in the summer, or if there's been some mishandling along the way with that. So either dehydration or sample mishandling. Another time we might see an increase in hemoglobin, but a decrease in PCV is if the animal has hemolytic anemia, intravascular hemolytic anemia. So that would be if a red maple leaf toxicosis, that kind of thing, where there's destruction of red cells or penicillin when they get that immune-mediated um, destruction of red cells. So just a question on, on uh, performance sources and mainly race sources. So a lot of trainers like to keep their hemoglobin at around 13 or higher and anything lower, they suggest it's anemic. Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I did look it up because we discussed this before now, and I... I haven't found anything in the literature to support it. What I did find was a piece by somebody I really respect, Ray Gore, who you know. And he, it's a 2002 informational piece he did, I think, for Michigan State, if I'm not misquoting that. But he thought that some of these quote-unquote blood builders that, that um, trainers or even veterinarians might give to horses actually don't have any benefit I don't know of any way of increasing hemoglobin legally. I, I know that some people place a lot of stock in it. I know that Ray Gore says that there's no way of, of increasing it reliably or, or even that you can manage to increase it. And um, I would worry more so that the animal has become dehydrated if I saw that high a hemoglobin in a horse. But there are those who have seen a lot of these hemograms and they think that they can read more deeply into them than, than I am aware from the primary literature is possible. So how reliable are these red cell indices values from day to day? Well, you can see some day-to-day -day variation. Definitely, it depends on whether you whether the horse has been scared by your arrival and sampling if the horse has just come in off the track. In those two instances, we'd expect to see splenic contraction, and that does have a big effect on red cell numbers. And otherwise, if you think the horse is fairly calm from day to day and you're sampling at a similar time day to day, I don't expect a lot of variability. If I do see a huge bit of variability, I would check to see if the animal were dehydrated or if something had occurred in the barn to scare the horse that I wasn't aware of walking in before taking the blood sample. So we know um, 
along that point, splenic contraction obviously occurs during exercise, so racing and training. So particularly after a race, how long um, do the red cell parameters take to return to normal? Well, red cell parameters, um, definitely white cell parameters, neutrophils and lymphocytes should be back within the reference interval within four hours. And definitely by 24 hours, you'd be safe to, to sample them again. Uh, there was, somebody had asked a question specifically about that, but definitely after sampling after racing or training, 24, you're fine. You'd be fine four to six hours after training as well. Okay. Great. Um, let's go back and just talk briefly about um, anemia. So you mentioned um, iron deficiency anemia. Mm -hmm. um, iron is present on a number of our biochemical results now. So how should veterinarians interpret a low iron result in these equine athletes? So let's say it, it has to be proven that it's coming out of the GI tract because that is iron loss from the body. And then that has to be replaced either with IV injections of iron or through dietary sources. An animal that's bleeding, say with EIPH, that iron goes into macrophages in the lung and then gets redistributed back to the body. So that's not actually lost physically from the body. And the building blocks for those red cells are still there. So they don't develop an iron deficiency anemia with repeated bouts of bleeding. So looking at the panel, they measure iron, obviously. They measure total iron binding capacity, which is a surrogate measure for how much transferrin is present, the iron transport molecule that, or protein, I should say, that, that drives iron around through the body and deposits it, deposits it at various locations. And then there's also unsaturated iron binding capacity. So if I liken total iron binding capacity or transferrin to a school bus, iron being the student on the school bus, school bus, unsaturated iron binding capacity is how many spare seats are there on the school bus for iron to bind. And then that takes us to percent saturation. So how much of the transferrin is saturated with iron? Usually it's about one third of spaces are occupied by iron in the healthy individual. So percent saturation, percent saturation tells us how many seats are currently occupied. And that's, I rather look at iron, total iron binding capacity and percent saturation. I don't look at UIBC because frankly, I find it a bit confusing. So let's look at some patterns that will help explain the interpretation of these results. If I see on the panel that I have decreased iron normal TIBC, which again is a surrogate measure of transferrin, but percent saturation is decreased. So a decrease in iron, normal TIBC, decreased percent saturation. This would suggest acute inflammation. Iron has been sequestered in macrophages in the body, and but um, transferrin has not been altered yet. Percent saturation is decreased because there's less iron available to be filling the seats on the school bus okay. or on transferrin. If, however, I see decreased iron and decreased TIBC, so that means there's decreased transferrin, but normal percent saturation. So low iron, low TIBC, 
normal percent saturation, that suggests a more chronic inflammatory process. Iron has been sequestered. Transferrin is a negative acute phase protein, so its production has been decreased. And that would imply inflammation that's been occurring for greater than 24 to 48 hours. So that's how quickly we'll see that kind of pattern develop. Percent saturation depends on how much iron relative to transferrin is still present. Generally, in this type of inflammatory process, there's still relatively there's still a relative proportion between iron and transferrin so that percent saturation remains unchanged. It remains normal. Okay. And if we see that iron is normal, but total iron binding capacity is decreased, it suggests a protein losing enteropathy. So we may see a decrease in albumin and globulin in that instance. So cyathostomonosis okay. or whatever we are calling cyathostomins now. Um, and if I see increased iron though, with normal TIBC, so normal transferrin, increased iron and increased percent saturation, that can be seen with hemolytic anemia. So getting back to anemias that are caused by a reaction with penicillin or red maple leaf toxicosis, because that has caused free iron to be available. TIBC hasn't changed because it's not inflammatory enough yet to decrease that. But since there's more iron available, more of the spots on the transferrin are occupied. So percent saturation will be increased in those instances. Okay. What about um, excessive iron administration? Yeah. Um, I did read Ray Gore on that topic. I don't remember exactly what I read. But I think if you, if one were to measure it immediately after, certainly you could see an increase in it. The body is so careful with iron because of course it causes free radical generation and stuff like that. So I think it gets quite quickly sequestered. But I do have a suspicion. It's not, I didn't find anything in the literature to support it, that, that we should see an increase in iron and we may see an increase in percent saturation, I would imagine because transferrin should be unchanged, but that increase in percent saturation might suggest that there's more iron available in the body. Okay. Cool. All right. Um, what about um, any medications that can alter any of these uh, red cell indices? Well, I did have a question from, from one of the equine vets out there, and they asked about chronic acepromazine administration. And I was able to locate a couple of papers that looked at the use of tranquilizers, not specifically ACE, but that that indeed would cause splenic sequestration as the horse relaxes. So I do believe that use of, of tranquilizers in horses can lead to a decrease in PCB. Okay, good to know because Acepromazine is certainly a medication that's used fairly frequently in, in racing. Yep. Okay, let's switch gears and talk about the white cell lines. Yes. So you'll often hear uh, sports medicine vets referred to the flip differential. What is this and what does it mean for the horse? So the significance of the flat or flipped differential Generally, in hot-blooded horses, there's a one-to-one, -one, depending on who you read, a one-to-one -one neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. 
Some people say 60-40 neutrophils to lymphocytes. In young, healthy racehorses, I think it is more common that the horse is excited, has released epinephrine or adrenaline, and that can cause an increase in lymphocytes more than neutrophils. I don't think that every time we see that, that it's in fact a viral infection, as a lot of people are worried about. Um, it will take about an hour for those lymphocytes to decrease back to the reference interval, and that would be one way of proving that it was just an adrenaline or epinephrine response. And the other thing that can happen is you can have an increase in neutrophils with that as well. So the animal could look to the average person reading these, these um, CBCs like they're, they're sick. But neutrophils, the key to that is neutrophils should not be more than twice the upper end of the reference interval. So if the upper, upper end of the reference interval is about 10, depending on what lab you're going to, it shouldn't be more than 20. So you can see neutrophilia and lymphocytosis with the adrenaline-mediated leukogram, or you can see just lymphocytosis. And it does not mean there's been exposure to a virus or that sort of thing. I think more typically with a viral infection, we would expect sequestration of lymphocytes as the body deals with the information it's getting from immune surveillance and calling lymphocytes in to, be, to receive instructions on how to deal with the viral invader. Mm -hmm. So I don't read a lot into that so-called flipped differential. Okay. What about with older horses? Yeah, older horses. Depends on who you read. Um, the, re the results are somewhat variable across studies. In the ones I found, like McFarlane, they said that there were no changes in neutrophils or monocytes with age. Horohov, who does a lot about aging changes in horses in general, inflammaging and things like that, where horses have increased inflammation but a decreased ability to deal with it as there's senescence of the immune system, he says that lymphocytes decrease with age. But that is one study in 2002, and there hasn't been a lot written by anybody else on, on these topics that I've come across. That was the most recent one I could find, really. Okay. It's interesting because that is a lower weight cell count is, in general, is something that we'll often see with older resources, but um, we don't always know how to interpret it. So it could very well be that it's part of it, the inflammaging process. Well, and I wonder, there. I think our equine athletes are certainly under more physiologic stress or perhaps super physiologic stress in a way compared to the average horse. So maybe they have an accelerated, and this is totally extemporizing and not founded on any kind of peer-reviewed literature, but they could have increased, like you're saying, inflammaging, so to speak. Yeah, interesting. Or maybe they're calmer. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> could be. So that leads me into the next question about um, white, high white blood cell counts. In equine sport, the number of cells that fit the definition of a high weight is usually lower than the range is used in generalist practice or equine hospitals. Is this reasonable? I think individualized medicine is very important in racehorses because each, we all know this, there's the super athletes that we encounter, there are the middle of the road athletes, and then there's the lesser athletes, shall we say. And I think each one of them deserves their own individual reference interval. So keeping track of a single patient's 
values over time, I think can be very useful. And there's some software out there that will do that for us if we have in-house instrumentation, or I know in all our spare time, we could be entering things into a spreadsheet ourselves, not, but um, keeping those and keeping track of it over time, I think is more useful than looking at reference intervals that may have been generated in the United States, may have been generated in England by whatever equipment manufacturer we're using. At the AHL, there were 91 clinically healthy standard bred racehorses used in the generation of the reference interval, but I don't know whether they were in race training or I assume they were all in race training, but I don't know exactly what the composition of that population was. Right. Was it the high end right. horses or was it the middle of the road? I don't know yeah, who specifically that was, but they were all clinically healthy and there were 91. So that's a robust number. However, I still like to track an individual over time to see what's Make, going on with them. Makes sense, for sure. Um, okay, well, what about other cells in that differential? Um, many wonder about monocytes. What does it mean if they're increased in an athlete? Yeah, the, if I see a monocytosis in a horse, I want to look at neutrophils and lymphocytes. Monocytes can be part of the stress leukogram, as you know. So in the stress leukogram, we expect a neutrophilia, mild, mature neutrophilia with no left shift. We expect a lymphopenia, so decreased lymphocytes, and we can have a monocytosis as well. If, however, I see normal numbers of lymphocytes, an increase in neutrophils, maybe there's toxic changes, maybe not. But if I see a monocytosis in that situation, then I think of more of chronic inflammation. So something something even heel scratches sometimes I think can cause enough inflammation in the horse to cause that sort of pattern. And I don't associate monocytes with allergy. That was one question that somebody had. I just associate them with inflammation. Okay. Because of course monocytes will travel from blood into tissue and become macrophages. And so that would explain their presence in the case of inflammation. And so when people see them um, shortly after viral infections, that's not unusual? Then? That's not unusual at all, no, and would be anticipated. Okay, um, another question. In vet school, we're, we're taught that an increase in bloody eosinophils usually reflect uh, parasitism most commonly and then some forms of inflammation. In equine sport, namely racing, their presence is usually associated with allergies, usually of the skin or respiratory system. What are your thoughts on an increased eosinophil count? Well, I with eosinophils, I have to go back to the vet and the trainer and say, what's gone on? Have they been dewormed? Do they show any sort of allergies, um, either skin or respiratory, as you say? The other things that creep onto my differential diagnosis list for an eosinophilia would be eosinophilic enteritis, which... I do not know the instance of that in our racehorse populations or our sport horse populations for sure. Some types of lymphoma, again, stuff that I don't often associate with, with our sport horse population, but I have seen the odd young standard bred with GI lymphoma, um, parasitism and allergy. Those are my, that's my list, my only list. <laughs> it's not very um, satisfying, perhaps, but yeah, allergy, parasitism, some types of enteritis, lymphoma, although we don't expect a lot of that in our young racehorse populations. Okay, great. Okay, one last question. 
Um, this is regarding the hemogram and interpretation of scattergrams. Oh, that yeah. A, that accompany uh, both red and white cell results. What's your uh, advice to veterinarians when reading those? Well, I, I do like to look at them because I do diagnostic service here and look at cases from the animal health laboratory that come through the hospital, so large and small animals. I look at them and I, I look at them in conjunction with the numbers. So it depends on what machine you're using. But if you have the prosite, if we're looking at white blood cells, fluorescence intensity is on the, the y-axis and granularity is on the x-axis. So the furthest population to the right of that graph will be eosinophils. And below that, but also quite far to the right, will be basophils. And then the next population, so if eosinophils are farthest to the right, basophils are right underneath there. Monocytes will be the next furthest to the right. And they will also have a higher fluorescence. Right below monocytes are lymphocytes, and below lymphocytes are neutrophils. So you'll see distinct blobs of cells in those areas. And that's how to interpret the prosite white blood cell scattergram. Okay. With red cell classification, there is size is on the y-axis and fluorescence is on the x-axis. So farthest to the right of that graph, there'll be the odd dot and that's random white blood cells showing up. But closer to the origin of the graph, so the closest to the y-axis will be red blood cells. And then there'll be a population making a V with the red blood cells. And the bottom population, the bottom blob that's large, will be platelets. So red blood cells are right up against the y-axis. Platelets are closest to the x-axis. And they're two big blobs that form a V. And then if there's any cells in between that, those two populations, those are reticulocytes because they have some fluorescence to them. So that's how I interpret prosite diagrams, which I assume most people have in their clinic. And if they have other ones, we may or may not get a scattergram with those. Okay. So let's move on to the biochemistry profile. And yes. probably the most interesting and asked about enzyme on the equine panel, uh, gamma glutamyl transferase, or GGT. Uh, an increase in GGT is not infrequently seen on racehorse biochemistry profiles. What's this enzyme and what does it do? GGT is mainly found on the biliary epithelial cells within the liver. And we do note it being increased in racehorses with poor performance. And this is a question that dogs every one of us. And to the point that Grayson Jockey Club has sponsored research into GGT in the last research call. Which is awesome. <laughs> Which is awesome because maybe we'll get some answers. There is limited information out there. We have, I think it's Tom Divers, and he gave a state-of-the-art address at the AAEP one year, and he was speaking more anecdotally about GGT, so I'll touch on some of what he wrote. There is also one recent paper, Mac in Veterinary Record, 2014 that says it's associated with cumulative training load. 
So increased GGT increases with training load. So getting back to it, there's some primary literature, like I say, it has been linked with decreased performance. Some think it's a virus that's gone through a barn because there'll be a cluster of horses in a barn that all have an increase in GGT. It could also be the training practices of the trainer. I certainly saw this in New Zealand where horses were heavily, heavily trained. Like win a race yesterday, you're gonna be back in on Friday because it's cup week and you're made to pull tires in between. <laughs> Even though you won the race. <laughs> so uh, that horse, in fact, didn't have a high GGT, but um, other horses that I saw in New Zealand that, that had similar high training loads would have an increase in GGT, and I would see it decrease when I knew that they were laid off for a while, when they were given some pasture rest. Other people say that along the lines of viral exposure, is it a drug that's being administered? like butte or something like that. Some people think it could be strongyle migration. Others think that it could be exposure to some other form of toxication or some other form of toxicant, although I don't know in racehorses what that might be. Um, About mycotoxins. Oh yeah, a mycotoxin, yeah, for sure. Mycotoxins, thank you. So mycotoxins, and then other people say that it may be due to depletion of hepatic glycogen stores and a generation of oxidative stress or oxygen free radical generation and oxidative stress on the cells. I think all of these are possible. It's just there's been, except for that one study by Mac, I haven't found a great deal on this. And again, Mac said that it was associated with cumulative training load. So perhaps it is the depletion of glycogen. Perhaps it is generation of oxygen free radicals. Right, because that would fit with training and mm -hmm. stress. Well, let's hope that um, whoever ends up doing this study comes up with some answers because anyone in the sport does, does uh, agree that it is associated with poor performance. So yep. hopefully we can find some answers. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what about um, increased bilirubin? That's not an uncommon finding in biochemistry profiles of racehorses either. Um, one common interpretation is that an increase in bilirubin indicates the horse had a bout of exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhage. Is there any evidence for this? And what could be uh, causes of increased bilirubin in a resource? So uh, there is no support in the primary literature that EIPH is associated with increased bilirubin. But this, again, just like GGT, is something that dogs me every day. Why is the bilirubin high in this horse? I wonder if racehorses go through their glucose more rapidly than other horses so that even though we think that it has to be 12 hours off food before we see that increase in bilirubin associated with not eating, I wonder if in racehorses it's shortened. Mm -hmm. But again, I haven't found any decent primary literature on this. So let's hope the GGT people are also studying bilirubin in these horses. Let's hope. Okay. Uh, well, another value on the chemistry profile that's fairly common in, in uh, performance horses is a low globulin level. Um, many horses have a low value, but they're clinically normal and have no history of infectious disease. So what is the significance of a low globulin? Well, I, I always wonder about this too. I, I know our AHL reference intervals are also on standard breads. I don't know what the age range of those standard breads is. My first thought is, is the animal young? So a two-year-old, a three-year-old, and have they just not encountered enough in stimulus to make globulins up into the reference interval? 
because they should have the full complement of regular globulins that are produced by the liver, such as the coagulation, clotting cascade globulins, alpha-2 macroglobulin, all of, the, all of those types of globulins. But then there's also the globulins that are obviously made by lymphocytes, B cells, and the immunoglobulin. So I wonder if it's the immunoglobulin component of that that mm -hmm. might be decreased in young racehorses in specific, just through a naive immune system. Otherwise, getting back to that idea of personalized medicine, personalized laboratory data interpretation, if, as you say, the horse is healthy and there's no indication that there's anything going on, like protein-losing enteropathy, where I would expect a low albumin and a low globulin, then I have to say it's just normal for the individual, just so long as they're totally healthy and happy and everything. Okay. And I don't think it would arise from catabolism of protein to make for gluconeogenic substrates because I think albumin is preferentially used for that. So if I see a low globulin on a horse that should otherwise be healthy, then I'm, I'm thinking it's a naive immune system more than anything else or that it's just normal for that individual. Right, and as you say, it probably makes sense to follow that uh, over subsequent profiles as well. Yeah. To get an idea. All right, let's switch to tying up. So tying up, which is otherwise known as exertional rhabdomyolysis or polysaccharide storage myopathy, which we might see in non-racing horses, cause an increase in muscle enzymes, specifically creatinine kinase and aspartate aminotransferase. Could you describe the dynamics of these two enzymes and when it is okay to put a horse that has tied up back into training? So with acute transient muscle injury, when the CK isn't in the hundreds of thousands or even in the upper close to the hundreds of thousands, if it's 10,000 or something like that, in general, the half-life of CK is about two hours in horses and it would peak between six and 12 hours after a single acute muscle injury episode. And depending on how high it's gone, it will be back within the reference interval within 24 to 48 hours. Of course, those very, very high enzyme values can take days to taper off, but we should see it decreasing after that 12-hour mark, certainly by 24 hours. So you can tell that you are, quote unquote, out of the woods or away from that muscle injury incident. AST, on the other hand, has a half-life of about two days and peaks around 24 to 36 hours, but it can remain increased according to some sources, not primary literature, for two to three weeks after injury. However, my suspicion is that either the CK was also correspondingly high and is also taking a long time to come back to the reference interval, or that there's been some problem with shipping the sample. Say it sat on the clot overnight, the serum sat on the clot overnight, or it was shipped in on a hot day, or something like that, and AST will leak from erythrocytes and cause contamination of the serum sample and a false increase in AST. Now, I know we've spoken, you and I, about, about um, when can we put them back into training, and I think when that CK starts to be back in the reference interval, and depending on the case, you may need to move them even before AST has come back to the reference interval. But what is your impression of that? I would agree. I think from practice, um, most people in most veterinarians in the racing business will wait till the CK comes down to normal 
showing that there's no ongoing muscle damage and we'll start training then. But again, it is, as I, I would agree with you, it's an individual um, issue. So we look at each horse uh, on their own to see if they can handle, um, handle the work. And we'll sometimes retest too, depending on how they recover from a training session to see where the muscle enzymes are, are, are going. But that seems to be um, the common way people handle it. Well, and that's, I think that's how I like to look at it, as you say, recheck it, because I, I would like to know if I think they've tied up to get the sample as soon as possible, and then to track that as it goes up through the peak, to, if money is no object, track it up through the peak, yeah. and then to trend it as it's coming down to, to make sure that CK is coming into the reference interval and, and taking the guesswork out. When did the injury occur and that sort of thing? Right. Now that's great. Okay. Okay. So now that you've talked about the red and white cell parameters, and you said you know they will be back to normal within 24 hours, and we've discussed the muscle enzymes, and the CK will peak around 12 hours, be back to normal around 24. When would you recommend veterinarians sample racehorses post race? Is it the next morning? Is it in 24? Or is it 48 hours? Let's say money is no object, and I want to catch the CK spike, I want to catch the AST, and I want to see both of them trailing off, then I would measure at 12 hours to catch the CK spike, and then I would come back in 24 hours to see what AST is doing. And then after 72 hours, we'd expect CK to be normal, and AST should be trending downwards at that point. And then if I want to do another one to see that AST has really returned to the reference interval, I would come at the end of the week because that's when I anticipate AST should be back to normal. I don't want to wait because I want to be able to trend and to see how bad I think the insult was with the magnitude of the CK. Yes, because pre presumably a high CK would affect how you go about treating it. So I think I agree with you. Knowing how high it goes is, is fairly important. Yep. Okay. Okay, let's switch gears and talk about the thyroid gland now. So we know fatigue is not uncommon in athletes of all species, and thyroid testing is often performed to determine if there is thyroid disease, um, particularly with racehorses. Which thyroid tests should be done, and do low values always indicate thyroid disease? Yeah, that the just like GGT, just like when do we measure CK and AST, and what does that high white mean? That these are all the basic questions that I get asked by racehorse vets every day. So, thyroid decreased thyroid hypothyroidism is actually very uncommon in horses. They've found, and I think with our well, I know from primary literature with with our equine athletes that T4 decreases with phenylbutazone, corticosteroids, strenuous exercise, diets high in energy, protein, zinc, or copper, and with any illness outside of the thyroid gland. So say they've got inflammation. So you get that euthyroid sick syndrome that you learned about in endocrinology back in vet school. Um, so there's so many things that I think horses get exposed to that would cause a decrease in T4 without them being truly hypothyroid. So the other thing that can affect uh, thyroid values is that horses have the highest total T4 in the late afternoon. 
So if we go in and we measure, if we take blood on a horse in the morning, that's when we anticipate that T4 is going to be at its lowest. So when we take blood can also influence it. So not only what we're giving the horse, but when we actually take the blood. So it may also be that because of all these factors, racehorses need their own reference interval for total T4. And I don't know of anybody who's currently doing that, but I think that if the horse is otherwise healthy and normal and a young-ish healthy racehorse, that I do not anticipate hypothyroidism in horses. It's just not that common. If we're talking, on the other hand, about an easy keeper, if we're talking about an older pleasure horse, then I start thinking about equine metabolic syndrome and pars pituitary intermedia dysfunction or equine Cushing's because they're discovering that PPID in younger and younger horses, that there's evidence of it being present. I don't anticipate finding that in the average racehorse. But certainly in, yeah, as you say, as in dressage, show jumpers, dressage in particular, because we do see a lot of those horses that yes. uh, are EMS suspects. So, yeah. So what about um, free T4? Do you recommend testing uh, the free T4 instead or along with the total T4? I like to see both of them together because that helps me understand whether it could be because the horse got butte or something like that. So if a horse has that so-called euthyroid 6 syndrome where they've got a low total T4 due to something outside of thyroidal hypothyroidism, um, then I expect free T4 to be within the reference interval. So low total T4 but free T4 within the reference interval fits that description of, of a horse that's received butte or is under a lot of training load, so on and so forth. So I do like to have those two together. Okay. That, well, that makes sense. And any special sampling requirements for free T4? Yeah, I always recommend that people look at the laboratory's submission guidelines. So yeah, one mil, so what you would do is you would go out, get a red top tube, take it back to the clinic, spin it down, harvest the serum carefully, and freeze that in a regular plain tube. And just note on the tube that it's serum. And the other thing you, you don't want to do is use a serum separator tube because that can bind to thyroid hormone and falsely decrease it as well. Okay, great to know. Thank you, Dr. Beeler Marfizi, for giving a great overview on interpreting hemograms and biochemical profiles in equine athletes. But before we go, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about your most recent research on equine asthma. So I am working on a geographic epidemiologic study to, to determine whether air pollution has any influence on the development of inflammatory airway disease or mild equine asthma, as they are now calling it. So that is, the, I went to the statistician and I have to collect a whole bunch more data before they can finish analyzing that data set. But I hope to have that done, oh please, um, in February of 2019, so I can inform people of what we found or didn't find. The reason I went there was because I know when there's bad air pollution out, my asthma is worse. And my husband also noticed that when I was using my puffer, his horses were having issues with, with breathing. So that, you know, made that project happen. So, and the other project I'm working, working on, the other project I'm working on is um, getting a mucolytic agent 
into the samples that are submitted for like a transtracheal wash or a BAL where there's a lot of mucus in there because the mucus, its natural job is to trap white blood cells, but it also makes it impossible to tell which white blood cell is which. So if I, as they do in human medicine, put a mucolytic agent into that sample, not into the horse, but into the sample tube, then we can break up the mucus and release those cells and examine them. So that's another project I'm working on as well. Oh, that's great. That'll be super helpful to anyone working in the respiratory realm with uh, equine athletes in particular. Well, once again, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. And uh, that's our episode for now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>